Chapter Six of Molly Make Believe by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. It was one day just about the end of the fifth week that poor Stanton's long accumulated, long suppressed perplexity blew up noisily, just like any other kind of steam. It was the first day, too, throughout all his illness that he had made even the slightest pretext of being up and about. Slippered if not booted, blanket-wrappered if not coated, shaven at least if not shorn, he had established himself fairly comfortably late in the afternoon at his big study table close to the fire, where, in his low Morris chair, with his books and his papers, and his lamp close at hand, he had started out once more to try and solve the absurd little problem that confronted him. Only an occasional twitch of pain in his shoulder-blade, or an intermittent shudder of nerves along his spine, had interrupted in any possible way his almost frenzied absorption in his subject. Here at the desk very soon after supper-time, the doctor had joined him, and with an unusual expression of leisure and friendliness, had settled down lollingly on the other side of the fireplace, with his great square-toed shoes nudging the bright brassy edge of the fender, and his big meerschaum pipe puffing the whole bleak room most deliciously, tantalizingly full of forbidden tobacco smoke. It was a comfortable, warm place to chat. The talk had begun with politics, drifted a little way toward the architecture of several new city buildings, hovered a moment over the marriage of some mutual friend, and then languished utterly. With sudden narrowing-eyed shrewdness the doctor turned and watched the unwanted flicker of worry on Stanton's forehead. "'What's bothering you, Stanton?' he asked quickly. "'Surely you're not worrying any more about your rheumatism?' "'No,' said Stanton. "'It isn't rheumatism.' For an instant the two men's eyes held each other, and then Stanton began to laugh a trifle uneasy. "'Doctor,' he asked quite abruptly, "'Doctor, do you believe that any possible conditions could exist that would make it justifiable for a man to show a woman's love-letter to another man?' "'Why, yes.' said the doctor cautiously. I think so. There might be circumstances. Still without any perceptible cause, Stanton laughed again, and reaching out, picked up a folded sheet of paper from the table and handed it to the doctor. Read that, will you? he asked, and read it out loud. With a slight protest of diffidence, the doctor unfolded the paper, scanned the page for an instant, and began slowly. Carl of mine, there's one thing I forgot to tell you. When you go to buy my engagement ring, I don't want any. No, I'd rather have two wedding rings instead, two perfectly plain gold wedding rings, and the ring for my passive left hand I want inscribed, to be a sweetness more desired than spring, and the ring for my active right hand I want inscribed, his soul to keep. Just that. And you needn't bother to write me that you don't understand, because you were not expected to understand. It is not man's prerogative to understand. But you are perfectly welcome, if you want, to call me crazy, because I am utterly crazy on one subject, and that's you. Why, beloved, if— Here, 
cried Stanton, suddenly reaching out and grabbing the letter. You needn't read any more. His cheeks were crimson. The doctor's eyes focused sharply on his face. That girl loves you, said the doctor tersely. For a moment then the doctor's lips puffed silently at his pipe, until at last with an almost bashful gesture he cried out abruptly, Stanton, somehow I feel as though I owed you an apology, or rather owed your fiancé one. Somehow, when you told me that day that your young lady had gone gadding off to Florida and left you alone with your sickness, why I thought, well, most evidently I have misjudged her. Stanton's throat gave a little gasp, then silenced again. He bit his lips furiously, as though to hold back an exclamation. Then suddenly the whole perplexing truth burst forth from him. That isn't from my fiancé, he cried out. That's just a professional love letter. I buy them by the dozen, so much a week. Reaching back under his pillow, he extricated another letter. This is from my fiancé, he said. Read it. Yes, do. Aloud, gasped the doctor. Stanton nodded. His forehead was wet with sweat. Dear Carl, the weather is still very warm. I am riding horseback almost every morning, however, and playing tennis almost every afternoon. There seem to be an exceptionally large number of interesting people here this winter. In regard to the list of names you sent me for the wedding, really, Carl, I did not see how I can possibly accommodate so many of your friends without seriously curtailing my own list. After all, you must remember that this is the bride's day, not the groom's and in regard to your question as to whether we expect to be home for Christmas, and could I possibly arrange to spend Christmas Day with you, why, Carl, you are perfectly preposterous. Of course it is very kind of you to invite me and all that, but how could Mother and I possibly come to your rooms when our engagement is not even announced? And besides, there is going to be a very smart dance here Christmas Eve that I particularly wish to attend, and there are plenty of Christmases coming for you and me. Cordially yours, Cornelia. P.S. Mother and I hope that your rheumatism is much better. That's the girl who loves me, said Stanton, not unhumorously. Then suddenly all the muscles around his mouth tightened like the facial muscles of a man who was hammering something. I mean it, he insisted. I mean it absolutely. That's the girl who loves me. Silently the two men looked at each other for a second. Then they both burst out laughing. Oh, yes, said Stanton at last. I know it's funny. That's the trouble with it. It's altogether too funny. Out of a book on the table beside him, he drew the thin grey and crimson circular of the serial letter company and handed it to the doctor. Then, after a moment's rummaging around on the floor beside him, he produced with some difficulty a long pasteboard box fairly bulging with papers and things. These are the communications from my make-believe girl, he confessed grinningly. Oh, of course they're not all letters, he hurried to explain. Here's a book on South America. I'm a rubber broker, you know, and of course I've always been keen enough about the New England end of my job, but I've never thought anything so very special about the South American end of it. 
But that girl, that make-believe girl, I mean, insists that I ought to know all about South America. So she sent me this book. And it's corking reading, too, all about funny things like eating monkeys and parrots and toasted guinea pigs, and sleeping outdoors in black jungle nights under mosquito netting, mind you, as a protection against prowling panthers. And here's a coy little newspaper cutting that she sent me one blizzardy Sunday telling all about some big violin maker who always went out into the forest himself and chose his violin woods from the north side of the trees. Casual little item. You don't think anything about it at the moment. It probably isn't true. And to save your soul you couldn't tell which kind of trees violins are made out of anyway. But I'll wager that never again will you wake in the night to listen to the wind without thinking of the great storm-tossed, moaning, groaning, slow-toughening forest trees learning to be violins. And here's a little funny old silver poringer that she sent me. She says to make my old grey gruel taste shinier. And down at the bottom of the bowl, the ruthless little pirate, she's taken a knife or a pin or something, and has scratched the words, Excellent child. But you know I never noticed that part of it at all till last week. You see, I've only been eating down to the bottom of the bowl just about a week. And here's a catalogue of a boys' school, four or five catalogues, in fact, that she sent me one evening, and asked me if I please wouldn't look at them over right away and help her decide where to send her little brother. Why, man, it took me almost all night. If you get the athletics you want in one school, then likelier than not you slip up on the manual training, and if they're going to schedule eight hours a week for Latin, why, where in creation? Shrugging his shoulders as though to shrug aside absolutely any possible further responsibility concerning little brother, Stanton began to dig down deeper into the box. Then suddenly all the grin came back to his face. And here are some sample wallpapers that she sent me for our house, he confided, flushing. What do you think of that bronze one there with the peacock feathers? Say, old man, think of a library and a cannel coal fire and a big mahogany desk and a red-haired girl sitting against that paper. And this sunshiny tint for a breakfast room isn't half bad, is it? Oh, yes, and here are the timetables and all the pink and blue maps about Colorado and Arizona and the painted desert. If we can afford it, she writes, she wishes we could go to the painted desert on our wedding trip. But really, old man, you know it isn't such a frightfully expensive journey. Why, if you leave New York on Wednesday, oh, hang it all, what's the use of showing you any more of this nonsense? He finished abruptly. With brutal haste, he started cramming everything back into place. Tis nothing but nonsense, he acknowledged conscientiously. Nothing in the world except a box full of make-believe thoughts from a make-believe girl. And here, he finished resolutely and my own fiancé's thoughts concerning me. Out of his blanket wrapper pocket he produced and spread out before the doctor's eyes five thin letters and a postal card. Not exactly thoughts concerning you, even so, are they? quizzed the doctor. Stanton began to grin again. Well, thoughts concerning the weather, then, if that suits you any better. Twice the doctor swallowed audibly. Then... But it's hardly fair, is it, to weigh a box full of even the prettiest lies against five of even the slimmest real true letters, he asked dryly. 
"'But they're not lies,' snapped Stanton. "'Surely you don't call anything a lie unless not only the fact is false, but the fancy also is maliciously distorted. "'Now take this case right before us. "'Suppose there isn't any little brother at all. "'Suppose there isn't any painted desert. "'Suppose there isn't any black sheep on a grandfather's farm. "'Suppose there isn't anything. "'Suppose I say that every single individual fact stated is false. "'What earthly difference does it make so long "'as the fancy still remains the truest, realest, "'dearest, funniest thing that ever happened to a fellow in his life?' "'Oh, ho!' said the doctor. "'So that's the trouble, is it? "'It isn't just rheumatism that's keeping you thin and worried-looking, eh?' It's only that you find yourself suddenly in the embarrassing predicament of being engaged to one girl and in love with another. No, cried Stanton frantically. No, that's the mischief of it, the very mischief. I don't even know that the serial letter company is a girl. Why, it might be an old lady rather whimsically inclined. Even the oldest lady, I presume, might very reasonably perfume her notepaper with cinnamon roses. It might even be a boy. One letter indeed smelt very strongly of being a boy. And mighty good tobacco, too. And great heavens! What have I got to prove that it isn't even an old man? Some poor old worn-out story-writer trying to ease out the ragged end of his years. "'Have you told your fiancé about it?' asked the doctor. Stanton's jaw dropped. "'Have I told my fiancée about it?' he mocked. "'Why, it was she who sent me the circular in the first place. "'But tell her about it? "'Why, man, in ten thousand years, and then some, "'how could I make any sane person understand?' "'You're beginning to make me understand,' confessed the doctor. "'Then you were no longer sane,' scoffed Stanton. The crazy magic of it has surely then taken possession of you, too. Why, how could I go to any sane person like Cornelia? And Cornelia is the most absolutely, hopelessly sane person you ever saw in your life. How could I go to anyone like that and announce, Cornelia, if you find any perplexing change in me during your absence and your unconscious neglect, it is only that I have fallen quite madly in love with a person. Would you call it a person? who doesn't even exist. Therefore, for the sake of this person who doesn't exist, I ask to be released. Oh, so you do ask to be released, interrupted the doctor. Why, no, certainly not, insisted Stanton. Suppose a girl you love does hurt your feelings a little bit now and then. Would any man go ahead and give up a real flesh-and-blood sweetheart for the sake of even the most wonderful paper-and-ink girl whom he was reading about in an unfinished serial story. Would he, I say? Would he? Yes, said the doctor soberly. Yes, I think he would, if what you call the paper and ink girl suggested suddenly an entirely new, undreamed-of vista of emotional and spiritual satisfaction. But I tell you, she's probably a boy, persisted Stanton doggedly. Well, why don't you go ahead and find out? said the doctor. Find out, cried Stanton hotly. Find out? I'd like to know how anybody is going to find out when the only given address is a private post office box. And as far as I know, there's no sex to a post office box. Find out? 
Why, man, that basket over there is full of my letters returned to me because I tried to find out. The first time I asked, they answered me with just a teasing, snubbing telegram. But ever since then, they've simply sent back my questions with a stern printed slip announcing, Your letter of blank is hereby returned to you. Kindly allow us to call your attention to the fact that we are not running a correspondence bureau. Our circular distinctly states, etc. Sent you a printed slip, cried the doctor scoffingly. The love letter business must be thriving. Very evidently you are by no means the only importunate subscriber. Oh, thunder, growled Stanton. The idea seemed to be new to him and not altogether to his taste. Then suddenly his face began to brighten. No, I'm lying, he said. No, they haven't always sent me a printed slip. It was only yesterday that they sent me a rather real sort of letter, you see, he explained. I got pretty mad at last, and I wrote them frankly, and told them that I didn't give a darn who Molly was, but simply wanted to know what she was. I told them that it was just gratitude on my part, the most formal, impersonal sort of gratitude, a perfectly plausible desire to say, thank you, to someone who had been awfully decent to me these past few weeks. I said right out that if she was a boy, why we'd surely have to go fishing together in the spring, and if she was an old man, the very least I could do would be to endow her with tobacco, and if she was an old lady, why I'd simply be obliged to drop in now and then of a rainy evening and hold her knitting for her. And if she's a girl, probed the doctor. Stanton's mouth began to twitch. Then heaven help me, he laughed. Well, what answer did you get? persisted the doctor. What did you call a realish sort of letter? With palpable reluctance, Stanton drew a grey envelope out of the cuff of his wrapper. I suppose you might as well see the whole business, he admitted consciously. There was no special diffidence in the doctor's manner this time. His clutch on the letter was distinctly inquisitive, and he read out the opening sentence with almost rhetorical effect. Oh, Carl, dear, you silly boy, why do you persist on hectoring me so? Don't you understand that I've got only a certain amount of ingenuity anyway, and if you force me to use it all in trying to conceal my identity from you, how much shall I possibly have left to devise schemes for your amusement? Why do you persist, for instance, in wanting to see my face? Maybe I haven't got any face. Maybe I lost my face in a railroad accident. How do you suppose it would make me feel, then, to have you keep teasing and teasing? Oh, Carl, isn't it enough for me just to tell you once for all that there is an insuperable obstacle in the way of our ever meeting? Maybe I've got a husband who is cruel to me. Maybe, biggest obstacle of all, I've got a husband whom I am utterly devoted to. Maybe, instead of any of these things, I am a poor, old, wizened-up, shut-in, tossing day and night, on a very small bed of very big pain. Maybe, worse than being sick, I am starving poor, and maybe, worse than being sick or poor, I am most horribly tired of myself. Of course, if you are very young and very prancy and reasonably good-looking, and still are tired of yourself, you can almost always rest yourself by going on the stage, 
where with the little rouge and the different coloured wig and a new nose and skirts instead of trousers or trousers instead of skirts and age instead of youth and badness instead of goodness you can give your ego a perfectly limitless number of happy holidays but if you were oldish i say and pitifully shut in just how would you go to work i wonder to rest your personality how for instance could you take your biggest, greyest, oldest worry about your doctor's bill and rouge it up into a radiant young joke? And how, for instance, out of your lonely, dreary, middle-aged orphanhood are you going to find a way to short-skirt your rheumatic pains and braid into two perfectly huge pink-bowed pigtails the hair that you haven't got and caper round so ecstatically before the footlights that the old gentleman and lady in front seat absolutely swear you to be the living image of their long-lost Amy? And how, if the farthest journey you ever will take again is a monotonous hand journey from your pillow to your medicine bottle, then how, for instance, with a map or tinsel or a tar of roses, can you go to work to solve even just for your own satisfaction the romantic, shimmering secrets of Morocco? Ah, you've got me now, you think, all decided in your mind that I am an aged invalid. I didn't say so. I just said maybe. Like the other night, I've saved my climax for its proper place. How do you know, for instance, that I'm not a coloured person? So many people are. Without signature of any sort, the letter ended abruptly then and there, and as though to satisfy his sense of something left unfinished, the doctor began at the beginning and read it all over again in a mumbling, husky whisper. Maybe she is coloured, he volunteered at last. Very likely, said Stanton perfectly cheerfully. It's just those occasional humorous suggestions that keep me keyed so heroically up to the point where I am actually infuriated if you even suggest that I might be getting really interested in this mysterious Miss Molly. You haven't said a single sentimental thing about her that I haven't scoffed at, now have you? No, acknowledged the doctor. I can see that you've covered your retreat all right. Even if the author of these letters should turn out to be a one-legged veteran of the War of 1812, you still could say, I told you so. But all the same, I'll wager that you'd gladly give a hundred dollars cash down if you could only go ahead and prove the little girl's actual existence. Stanton's shoulders squared suddenly, but his mouth retained at least a faint vestige of its original smile. You mistake the situation entirely, he said. It's the little girl's non-existence that I am most anxious to prove. Then utterly without reproach or interference, he reached over and grabbed a forbidden cigar from the doctor's cigar case and lighted it and retreated as far as possible into the grey film of smoke. It was minutes and minutes before either man spoke again. Then at last, after much crossing and recrossing of his knees, the doctor asked drawlingly, And when is it that you and Cornelia are planning to be married? Next April, said Stanton briefly. Um, said the doctor. After a few more minutes he said, Hmm, said the doctor. And after a few more minutes he said, Hmm, again. The second, Mmm, seemed to irritate Stanton unduly. Is it your head that's spinning around? 
he asked tersely. You sound like a Dutch top. The doctor raised his hands cautiously to his forehead. Your story does make me feel a little bit giddy, he acknowledged. Then, with sudden intensity, Stanton, you're playing a dangerous game for an engaged man. Cut it out, I say. Cut what out? said Stanton stubbornly. The doctor pointed exasperatedly towards the big box of letters. Cut those out, he said. A sentimental correspondence with a girl who's more interesting than your fiance. Whew! growled Stanton. I'll hardly stand for that statement. Well, then lie down for it, taunted the doctor. Keep right on being sick and worried and. Peremptorily he reached out both hands towards the box. Here, he insisted, let's dump the whole mischievous nonsense into the fire and burn it up. With an ouch of pain, Stanton knocked the doctor's hand away. Burn up my letters? he laughed. Well, I guess not. I wouldn't even burn up the wallpapers. I've had altogether too much fun out of them. And as for the books, the browning, etc., why, hang it all, I've gotten awfully fond of those books. Idly he picked up the South American volume and opened the fly-leaf for the doctor to see. Carl, from his Molly, it said quite distinctly. Oh, yes, mumbled the doctor. It looks very pleasant. There's absolutely no denying that it looks very pleasant. And some day, out of an old trunk, or tucked down behind your library encyclopedias, your wife will discover the book and ask blandly, Who was Molly? I don't remember you ever saying anything about a Molly. Just someone you used to know. And your answer will be innocent enough. No, dear. Someone whom I never knew. But how about the pucker along your spine, and the awfully foolish grinny feeling around your cheekbones? And on the street and in the cars and at the theatres you'll always and forever be looking and searching and asking yourself, Is it by any chance possible that this girl sitting next to me now? And your wife will keep saying with just a barely perceptible edge in her voice, Carl, do you know that red-haired girl whom we just passed? You stared at her so. And you'll say, oh no, I was merely wondering if, oh yes, you'll always and forever be wondering if, and mark my word, Stanton, people who go about the world with even the most innocent chronic questions in their eyes are pretty apt to run up against an unfortunately large number of wrong answers. But you take it all so horribly seriously, protested Stanton. Why you rave and rant about it, as though it was actually my affections that were involved. Your affections? cried the doctor in great exasperation. Your affections? Why, man, if it was only your affections, do you suppose I'd be wasting even so much as half a minute's worry on you? But it is your imagination that's involved. That's where the blooming mischief lies. Affection is all right. Affection is nothing but a nice, safe flame that feeds only on one special kind of fuel, its own particular object. You've got an affection for Cornelia, and wherever Cornelia fails to feed that affection, it is mercifully ordained that the starved flame shall go out into cold grey ashes without making any further trouble whatsoever. 
But you've got an imagination for this make-believe girl, heaven help you, and an imagination is a great, wild, seething, insatiate tongue of fire that thwarted once and for all in its original desire to gorge itself with realities will turn upon your body and soul and lick up your crackling fancy like so much kindling wood and sear your common sense and scorch your young wife's happiness. Nothing but Cornelia herself will ever make you want Cornelia. But the other girl, the unknown girl, why, she's the face in the clouds. She's the voice in the sea. She's the glow of the sunset. She's the hush of the June twilight. Every summer breeze, every winter gale, will fan the embers. Every thumping, twittering, twanging pulse of an orchestra, every— Oh, Stanton, I say it isn't the ghost of the things that are dead that will ever come between you and Cornelia. There never yet was a ghost of any lost thing that couldn't be tamed into a purring household pet. But the ghost of a thing that you've never yet found? That, I tell you, is a very different matter. Pounding at his heart and blazing in his cheeks, the insidious argument, the subtle justification that had been teeming in Stanton's reins all the way, burst suddenly into speech. But I gave Cornelia the chance to be all the world to me he protested doggedly. And she doesn't seem to care a hang about it. Great Scott, man! Are you going to call a fellow unfaithful because he hikes off into a corner now and then and reads a bit of Browning, for instance, all to himself? Or wanders out on the piazza some night, all soul alone, to stare at the stars that happen to bore his wife to extinction? But you'll never be able to read Browning again all by yourself, taunted the doctor. Whether you buy it fresh from the presses, or borrow it stale and old from a public library, you'll never find another copy, as long as you live, that doesn't smell of cinnamon roses. And as to stargazing, or any other weird thing that your wife doesn't care for, you'll never go out alone, any more into dawns or darknesses, without the very tingling conscious presence of a wonder whether the other girl would have cared for it. Oh, shucks, said Stanton. Then suddenly his forehead puckered up. Of course I've got a worry, he acknowledged frankly. Any fellow's got a worry who finds himself engaged to be married to a girl who isn't keen enough about it to want to be all the world to him. But I don't know that even the most worried fellow has any real cause to be scared, as long as the girl in question still remains the only flesh-and-blood girl on the face of the earth whom he wishes did like him well enough to want to be all the world to him. "'The only flesh-and-blood girl,' scoffed the doctor. "'Oh, you're all right, Stanton. I like you and all that. "'But I'm mighty glad just to say this isn't my daughter whom you're going to marry, "'with all this Molly make-believe nonsense lurking in the background. "'Cut it out, Stanton, I say. Cut it out. Cut it out,' mused Stanton, somewhat distraught. "'Cut it out. What? Molly make-believe?' Under the quick jerk of his knees, the big box of letters and papers and things brimmed over in rustling froth across the whole surface of the table. Just for a second the muscles in his throat tightened a trifle. Then suddenly he burst out laughing, wildly, uproariously, like an excited boy. "'Cut it out!' he cried. "'But it's such a joke!' Can't you see that it's nothing in the world except a perfectly delicious, perfectly intangible joke? Um, reiterated the doctor. 
In the very midst of his reiteration there came a sharp rap at the door, and in answer to Stanton's cheerful permission to enter, the so-called delicious intangible joke manifested itself abruptly in the person of a rather small feminine figure, very heavily muffled up in a great black cloak and a rose-coloured veil that shrouded her nose and chin bluntly, like the nose and chin of a face only half-hewed out as yet from a block of pink granite. "'It's only Molly,' explained an undeniably sweet little alto voice. "'Am I interrupting you?' End of chapter 6